at this matter of fruitful farming. We've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit for some time, and I want us to look at a heart attitude that really envelops all of the other uh, fruit that is on the list. We've talked about love and joy and peace and patience right on down the line, and today I want us to talk about humility. And as we look at humility, as we look at this heart attitude, it comes directly from the text in Galatians, and I think it ties together all of the rest of this fruit of the Spirit. It's a heart attitude that must be a part of our life if we are going to please the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to live our lives submitted to the Spirit of God, we do so in humility. And we're going to see some facets of that, maybe that you've not considered or contemplated. Humility is such a vital part of our salvation. Uh, Jesus in the Beatitude said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You have to be spiritually bankrupt. You have to come to the place where you go, I have nothing to offer God. Now, in this day and age, people are, are, you know, puffed up about various things. I heard a story of a man who at his job was promoted to vice president. We're in the political season, so vice presidents are all around and our, our thinking and our conversations. But this man at his job was given the title of VP. And he just got excited about it. He told his kids, your dad is now the VP. He told his wife repeatedly, you're married to the vice president. And on and on and on it went. I mean, he told everybody, total strangers he would tell that. And finally his wife sat him down and said, listen, a title is just a title. People have VP titles all over the place. She said, we go to the grocery store, they've got a VP of butter beans. I mean, it's just everywhere. And he got swollen up mad, just sullen about it, and so he went to the grocery store, and he went to the customer service counter, and he said, I'd like to see the VP of Butterbeans, to which they replied, frozen or fresh? So they're all over the place. I know that was a long way to go for a really, really bad joke, but that got us started this morning. In Galatians chapter 5, we see a hard attitude uh, at the very end of this discord on, on fruit that I think we need to see. Let's look together at it. We'll begin in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. And look at this last verse with me, verse 26. We must not become conceited or arrogant or boastful, other translations might say, provoking one another and envying one another. I want us to pray and ask God to give us blessing and understanding of the reading of His Word today, and hopefully together we will begin to see truth, maybe from a new facet. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the truths of the book of Galatians. Thank You, Lord, that we can see ourselves in these words and we can see the remedy for ourselves. Thank You that the Apostle Paul would write these words to men and women who were struggling to live under the supervision of the law. And thank you, Lord, that we are no longer under the law for the fruit of the Spirit completely fulfills and satisfies the requirements of the law. Help us to learn today, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody together said... Amen. I want you to get the context with me. Paul paints a picture of relationships that are built and nourished by the Spirit of God. 
And we see that he's writing to a group of people who are struggling with going back to the law. If you read the book of Galatians, he is, he is rebuking many who have come to Christ, but they want to go back and they want to subject others to the law. And here he says, there is no law against such things. As he mentions, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the like. And why would he say there's no law? Because the fruit of the Spirit does completely fulfill the law. There is no Old Testament Mosaic law against these things. There's no law that would stand and be cited against these character qualities. The Spirit-led life is not a life against the law, but one that fulfills the law. And it's important for us to see that because as we look together at the fruit of the Spirit growing in our lives, we see God's plan and purpose for our lives. Again, the law was written and, and it was written uh, to those who would try and, and strive and work to live up to it, but it was never written for the purpose of saving anyone. I run into people all the time. I, I have a couple of favorite coffee shops in town that I've met people and, and just dialogue with people. And they talk about salvation in terms of what they're trying to do. Well, I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to keep the Ten Commandments. I'm trying to work. And the bottom line is that we could never keep up with those. The standard is too high. And yet, the fruit of the Spirit that comes into our lives fulfills the standard of the law. When we are in Christ, all of these things rise up into our lives. And Paul gives not only the fruit, a picture of it, he gives practical application of it. Those who belong to Christ, in verse 24, have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. Now, if you would, look back with me to verse 15 for a moment. And think about this. It says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So he's talking about biting and devouring earlier. And here he's talking about provoking and envying. You know what the common denominator is in both of these? Everybody look this way. It's one simple sin. It's the sin of pride. Pride can destroy a congregation faster than anything else. It can destroy a marriage. It can destroy a relationship. When somebody begins to buy their own hype and they begin to exert pride in their lives over others, then it always creates problems. It wreaks havocs in a church. It wreaks havoc, excuse me, in a church. And in your life and in my life, we need to see this very clearly. Here's what's going on. They're trying to keep the law. They're trying to go back. And what they're doing to one another is boastfully saying, I do better at keeping the law than you do. There's a pride issue. There are people in the church that do that. I know that this happens in other states. I've heard of it. We ought to pray for them. It never happened here. But there are places where people serve so that they'll get recognition. I know, right? I'm scared and shocked by that too. Some of you might be surprised to hear that that would happen. I can't even imagine a place where somebody would serve so that they could get a plaque put in their name or a pat on the back or, or they would get recognized but the reality is that our sinful flesh longs to be praised. And in fact, as we think about that, Paul is writing to a group of people who were in very grave danger of dealing with this issue of pride in the church because they were focused on the law, they were trying to outdo each other. In fact, where it says to provoke one another actually has the connotation of a contest. They were being competitive about it. I'm more spiritual than you are. 
And in our day and age, it's not just the Ten Commandments or the law, but we put on a religious show at times and we try to demonstrate outwardly how good we are so that other people will see it. And the reality is he's saying, let the Spirit of God cultivate from the inside out a new dynamic of love. And it's not just any love. Lost people can love one another, but it's sacrificial agape love, unconditional love. It is the love of God. We talked about this at length as we went through each of these. It's not just a sense of happiness. No, it is long-standing joy that will not be taken away by external circumstances. It's not just a sense of peace where there's an absence of conflict. If you remember back to that sermon, we said it's peace that passes understanding. It's peace that happens and contentment that happens even in the midst of conflict in your own personal life. So the fruit of the Spirit is a totally different dynamic. And the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people who are struggling with religious pretense and show versus authentic Christianity, authentically following Jesus. And so there lays the the backdrop for all of what we want to talk about today. But as we move forward in this, I want to take this to a different place. I I wish that we had time. I I ran almost a hundred different passages down that deal with humility. All throughout Scripture, we're called to be humble. And Paul's saying, if you exert this uh, conceit, if you exert this arrogance, you'll tear things apart. Just a few of them. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What do we do out of vain conceit or selfish ambition? Nothing. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Proverbs 11.2, with pride comes disgrace, with humility comes wisdom. Why do I take time to go through all of that? Pastor, why are you telling us all these things about humility? I mean, we're pretty humble church and we're proud of it. It's easy. Some of you will get that over lunch too. My next book is on how I achieved humility. I can't wait to go worldwide with how good I am at being humble when I write that book. Humility is so opposite our fleshly nature. Our flesh desires recognition, ownership, rulership. And when Jesus submitted himself to God in the ways that he did in the incarnation to leave heaven and come to earth and limit his power, to limit the glory that was bestowed upon him in heaven, to take upon himself all of the scourging and all of the cursing and all of the beating and the crucifixion. When he did that, the model of what he did for us at Calvary gives for us an example of what it takes to have a relationship with God. We must humble ourselves and he will draw near to us. God will not stand for flesh on parade. And you and I need to understand that in our church life and in our home life, flesh will continually rise up in the sin of pride. It's the sin that got Satan off guard or, or off course. He said, I will ascend. I will place my throne above the throne of the Most High. And humility must be a part of our lives. That's why, church, as we've looked at this entire passage of chapter 5 in Galatians, we've seen him say over and over again, put to death these things. 
so that you might walk and live in these things. If we were looking at the entirety of the book of Philippians, we would go, or excuse me, of Galatians, we could go back to chapter two where Paul started it all and said, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. You see, too many Christians, too many churches have eye problems. I, 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 not this I, but I. I want to do this. I want to be known for this. I want to be recognized for this. So now, I want to take you to one other place in Scripture if we can. And this will be for us. In Luke chapter 18, really a demonstration of all that I'm talking about. As we think about this notion of humility, it is critical for us to get this picture in our hearts and minds. Have you ever really wondered what humility is all about biblically? You know, some people say, well, it's not thinking, you know, it's thinking less of yourself. I don't believe it's thinking less of yourself. I think it's getting to the place where you don't think of yourself. And it's not just thinking negatively about yourself. It's agreeing with God about who you are. You see, the grace of God will exalt a person without inflating him and humble a person without debasing them. Listen to that. The grace of God will exalt a person without puffing them up. But it also in our lives uh, will humble a person without debasing them. What do I mean by that? Well, a lot of people, again, have got this notion in their mind that they somehow were worthy of salvation. But there are others, even in this place, that struggle with the security of their salvation. Just this week, I've had four or five conversations with people who were wrestling with their own security, their own salvation, just struggling with it. And here's what they said, many, many people, and I bet I'll, this statement will resonate with some people here. They've said to me, I just don't feel worthy. Anybody here ever not feel worthy of the love of God, the grace and the mercy of God? You know what I did when they said that? I've, I've had three different occasions where someone said that exact statement. I affirmed them in it. I said, you're right, you're not. But that's the good news. We must come to the place where we understand that we are not worthy. And when we do, if we attach it to the right place, the object of our faith must be Jesus Christ. And when I say, I'm not worthy, but in His grace that He's lavished toward us, in the fact that He died for us demonstrating His love while we were still sinners... I can walk in His grace. He has deemed me worthy. Not because of who I am, but because of who He is. That makes it all the more worshipful. That I would worship Him, not because He saved me, because He said, well, Scott's a pretty good guy, and I think I can do something with him. No, Scott was worthless. Scott was a wretch, separated from God, at war with God, but Jesus died for Scott anyway. And he died for you. And so you and I need to come to the place where we understand, as God says about us, we are. And when we do that, humility is a natural outcropping. When we begin to see that God's grace exalts us without inflating us, but it humbles us in an incredible way. God exalts us to use us to take the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. That was the message that I shared at South 28 just a moment ago, was that we've got business to do. I, I am totally convinced of this, and I, I want you to hear my heart even before we get to Luke. This is kind of off script. I'm moving away from the teleprompter. My heart is this. God called me to Hattiesburg, Mississippi for a very, very distinct purpose. I really, truly want to make Hattiesburg the hardest place in the world to go to hell from. 
I want to get to the place where if somebody dies and goes to hell, it's not because the people of Hardy Street Baptist Church have not told them. I pray that they would have to leap over our bodies and leap over the sound of our shouting voices that Jesus saves. And we don't do that with a sense of haughtiness. We don't do that with an arrogance. We don't do that looking our noses down at anybody. This is a messed up world and there are messed up people in it and I'm one of them. I don't look down my nose at somebody that's struggling with addiction or or working through some other sin. At times, it's easy for me to bang the pulpit and talk and preach loud about somebody else's sin and miss my own. The words of what we're going to read in Luke resonated with me this week. My prayer sometimes is simply reduced to this. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke 19, and we'll bring this together. Or, excuse me, Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a publican or tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes toward heaven. Was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, our time is ebbing away, so I want us to just get right to this very simple comparison. There are two categories of people, two kinds of people we see in this parable. Number one, I want you to see this. It's two kinds of people. There was a Pharisee and then a publican. Let's look at the Pharisee for a moment. Here's a spiritual leader among the people, known for and respected as a man of God. He knew the scriptures. In fact, if you were to look at a Pharisee, if we had a a model of a Pharisee in here today, he would have small phylacteries that would be put on his forehead and on his arms that would hold the Word of God, small scrolls. And he was arrogant about it. He walked with a strut. He walked with swag in our day and age. He walked and people said, look at that guy. And he was so impressed with himself. And it comes out in his prayer. We'll get to his prayer in a moment. But he fasted twice a week ceremonially. And he tithed on everything he got. He would take his herb garden and he would pull a tenth off of each of those. Now, forget about justice and about loving people. Jesus confronted a Pharisee like that one time. He said, you're doing all of these legalistic rules, but you've missed the whole point. He said, you are like a whitewashed tomb. You're beautiful on the outside, cleaned up and pretty, and dead on the inside. And folks, there's not a place for that in this world where the church can clean itself up on the outside and shine up pretty and be filled with dead bones on the inside. The world needs life. The world needs to come to the house of bread and find bread. The world needs to come to this place and find hope. And if you and I are just pretending and playing religious games and looking down our noses at others, we will not be the hope of the world. But the local church, uh, given the power of the Spirit of God, following the Word of God is the hope of the world. We have the answer. We have the remedy. 
And here, this man who you would look to and say, boy, there's the answer. I wish I could be like him is what the people around would say. Now, you and I look at his prayer and you say, I don't want to be anything like that. In fact, I, he's, he prayed. Can you believe it? He prayed. Lord, I'm glad I'm not like other people. Can you imagine yourself ever praying that kind of prayer? Some of you are shaking your heads. You're saying, I would never pray like that guy. And you're proud of it. Think about what you, you I would never pray like that guy that said he would never pray like other guys. We put ourselves in the same line of thinking. As we look at these two people, this religious leader that's putting on a show, let's look at the hard attitude of the other man, the publican, the tax collector. Now, what do we know about tax collectors? He was a traitor in the eyes of many. He, he had been a spiritual outcast. He was welcome to come and pray there in the temple in the court of the Jews, but he would never be allowed in the synagogue because he was a traitor. He worked for Rome. He collected taxes for the Romans. And he could set his own price and extort the people and take more. That's why we know many stories show tax collectors as greedy, greedy people. In fact, we see that, that there are others that were even chief tax collectors. Do you remember one? He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Don't start singing, but you know who I'm talking about. Zacchaeus. The Bible says there in Luke 19, he was a chief tax collector. That means he was over other tax collectors, like Matthew. Matthew brought taxes to Zacchaeus, possibly, as a chief tax collector, Well, this is a nameless tax collector. We don't know anything other than that's his occupation. And he comes to the temple to pray, and the religious man stands with his arms wide open and his eyes toward heaven, and this man stands off in the distance, not in the spotlight, but in the shadows, off to the side, not desiring to be noticed by anyone but God. And the other Jews would never have allowed this man to come into the synagogue. This tax collector collecting taxes for the the Romans, those that would oppress them. As a tax collector, he would have been known for greed and dishonesty. Even if he was a man of integrity, he would have been labeled as such. This man is a picture of the other element of people in the church. You know, there are a lot of people who don't act like we think they should. They might not dress like we dress. Well, he can't be spiritual. He doesn't have a tie on. She can't be spiritual. Look at the way she carries herself. And yet, when we look at the very heart of this man, We see a man who was justified by God because he was connected to God. The spiritual leader in all of his pomp and circumstance was rejected. And we'll get there in a moment. So these two kinds of people are the first things that we see. Second that I want you to see, there are two kinds of prayer. And these two kinds of prayer are very simple. I'll give them to you quickly. One is a haughty prayer and one is a humble prayer. You you can write those down and get those in your heart and your mind. One's haughty. It's obnoxious. I'm so thankful, God, that I'm not like them. God, aren't you glad that I'm on your side? God, aren't you glad that you've got me on your team? Or God, aren't you glad that you're on my team? I mean, he almost has that attitude. And and if we're not careful, again, we cast disparaging looks toward his prayer, but we act the same exact way. We look down our noses on other people. 
And, and we as a church must become, as you heard it said over and over again, a hospital for sick sinners. We're called to be fishers of men, not an aquarium keeper for the saints. We are called to go out into the world, not a museum of Christianity, but a hospital for people that are broken. Will we be that? So you have two kinds of people praying two kinds of prayer, a haughty prayer and then a humble prayer. The humble prayer is pretty simple. Lord, I I have nothing is the hard attitude. Have mercy on me. I don't deserve it. You don't owe it to me. You don't have to give it to me. A simple plea. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Maybe it would do good for all of us to contemplate the wickedness of our own hearts. You see, here's what happens. When I compare myself to other people, I can make myself look really good. And that's what the haughty prayer looks like. I'm thankful I'm not like that man. I mean, he even points this guy out specifically. Not just in general. He goes, I'm glad I'm not like other people that are sinful and wicked. I'm glad I'm not like that. And there are people that walk into this church and we at times say, I'm glad I don't look like them or smell like them or act like him or her. And the reality is when I compare myself to Christ, I find where I truly fit in. I will never forget this, and I know our time is, is, is marching past, but I'll never forget this. When Stephanie and I were just about to get engaged, we were looking at a couple of different um, uh, rings, and we just talked about it a little bit, and we went to a certain jewelry store in town, and one of the, the, the men that, that runs that jewelry store has family in our church, and he got me so bad. Butch Brown's his name, and Butch just, I mean, he, he threw me under the bus. I said, Butch, how much should you spend on uh, an engagement ring? I've heard all kinds of different things. And he smiled and he said, you just spend whatever you think she's worth. (laughs) I could have killed him. I crawled out of that store. And three days later, I had the perfect response. In the middle of the night, I woke up and said, you don't have a ring in this place worth that much. (laughs) But it was three days later and it didn't count. He also said, Scott, let me show you something. And he gave me a jeweler's loop and he let me look at a couple of different stones. And he said, if you can pick the expensive one, I'll let you have it. And I'm looking and there was one that was just amazing, amazing. Without the loop, I looked and I said, well, this one. And he said, that that stone is worthless. And there was one next to it that was worth thousands of dollars. And I took out that loop and I could see the faults in it. You see, sometimes we like to compare ourselves to other people, but when I'm held up to the perfect light of Christ, the faults in my life begin to show. And that's what he did. I held that up to the light in the loop, and I could see that there were faults there. Now, what am I saying about all of this? I simply want you to see this. There were two kinds of profit that day, two end results. Two kinds of people praying, two kinds of prayer, and two different kinds of profit. One was received by God. It says, he went home that day justified. He was right with the Lord. He's a tax collector. How in the world can he be right with God? But he was. And the second was rejected by God. The religious man spent all his time coming to church for people to see him. And the end result, it says, he was not justified before God. 
Now, I'm not saying you don't come to church. No, we're called to come to church. We're called to worship. We're called to gather. That's a whole different deal. But what I'm saying is, what's your heart attitude? Is there humility about who you are that says, I don't have anything to bring except for what Jesus brings in and through me? Dr. Taylor, I want to tell you, when you go to Southwestern Seminary, they'll give you uh, fancy regalia to wear at graduation. You're a servant that should wash the feet of students. When I stand and preach to you, if I ever point a finger out, I'm pointing lots back at me. I know my faults. And I pray that I would always be a humble man that would say, Lord, I want to follow you. Because you alone have the words of life. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ and I no longer live. He says, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus lives in and through me and through you as a believer. The final word, very simple, it's on your notes that I want you to see as we thought about these two kinds of people and prayers and prophets is that there's one clear point. God responds to humble faith. The way to be honored by the Lord is to realize that you're nothing before the Lord. The way to forgiveness is through confession of sin. The way to be right with the Lord is to realize just how wrong we are. I couldn't think of any other ways to put it. The way that we are exalted with Him is by humbling ourselves, confessing our sin, asking for His help. And listen to this, folks. One day we will all be humbled. Make no mistake about it. Philippians 2, that day is coming. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every person will be humbled, but at that point it's too late. So you can wait and be humbled or you can humble yourself today. You can wait and be uh, in the presence of Him as judge or you can meet Him today as Savior. Humbly following the Lord. Because God responds to humble faith. Today, I believe with all my heart, there are some that need to trust Him. You've placed in your bank account, in your mind, spiritually, that you're just banking on the fact, I've done pretty good. I've been a part of this church or other churches. I've gone to Sunday school. I've done good things. I've been nice. I've I've given more than I've taken. Those aren't the standards. The standard is sinless perfection. And the only way we reach, reach that is to say, I'm nothing, and let Jesus fill you up with everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. I pray, God, that if there are those who need to unite with this church, I pray that you would uh, give them the leadership to bring them this way. God, if there are those who need to be saved today, that you would work in their hearts and lives and draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.